This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. I am Bill Huffman, and welcome to this week's episode of Who Killed Amy Maholovic? This podcast takes a deep dive into one of Cleveland's most infamous unsolved child murders. For any listeners who aren't familiar with this case, I implore you to check out episode one so you're not confused as we move forward. On this week's episode, we take things in a little different direction. Typically, we strictly talk about the Maholovic case, but this week we are going to look at a case out of Canada that has striking similarities to Amy's abduction. So this week I am joined in the studio with Nick from the True Crime Garage podcast to discuss the abduction and murder of one Allison Perot. Nick will give you the nuts and bolts of this case, but I will say the way she was abducted sounds a little too familiar. Both Allison and Amy were lured by a man who called them on the phone. The stories they used were different, but they were very close in age, Allison being 11 when she was abducted while Amy was just a few weeks away from her 11th birthday. In this episode, we also break down our experience from CrimeCon 2019. So join me and Nick as we discuss the murder of Allison Perot. Good morning, Nick. How's everything today? Good morning, Bill. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Always a pleasure to have uh, Nick from True Crime Garage here. And uh, how are you recovering from your uh, crime con experience? Uh, very well. Uh, about uh, 94% on the old uh, health meter. Um but I seldom get above 96, so we're, we're very close to running at full speed. I tell you what, this year's CrimeCon, and, and I don't, I'm not picking this because of the city or the venue or anything like that, but um, we talked about this on Off the Record a little bit. It's, I've been to all three CrimeCons now, so there's been three of them. I've been to three of them. And very lucky to do so. It's awesome to meet the people that listen to our show and listen to all the other fantastic shows out there. The thing that was so amazing is watching how CrimeCon, the convention itself, grows not only in attendance, but also the experience and how they put it together. They're, they're learning as they go and you can really see these aren't baby steps from year one to two or three these are giant leaps that they're making in putting together this experience i would i liken it to the first year felt a little more like a county fair and this third year felt a little more like disney world so um you know i think they're they're definitely moving in the right right direction everything's very was very organized this year very well laid out everything looked really great um i really enjoy that podcast row is growing as well i think that's one of the you know there's all these featured things to go to and presentations that you can go to that are just downright fantastic 
However, I think Podcast Row is not only a big draw for CrimeCon, but it's an extra like side dish for the people that are attending. And, and you saw how, I mean, people just turned out in Podcast Row and in droves. And uh, the, the only thing that doesn't work well for me, and this is just me being very selfish, is almost all of the presentations that I wanted to go to this year took place during Podcast Row. Now, one thing I will say that I told several people, because we get in these conversations and, and it's get to say hello to everybody and talk to everybody, but I said, you know, they said the same thing. You know, I feel like I'm, I missed this because I had to choose this over this. And I said, well, I have to be here at my little true crime garage table and I'm missing this thing that I, I really wanted to meet Jeffrey Reinick, a retired special agent with the FBI that we had on our show. Um, he, he came on our show. He, he's been one of our best guests. Uh, and you know how much I love the FBI. So I spoke to him for hours and never got to meet him face to face every time he was doing, and he's not really a, um, he's not really an out there upfront kind of dude. So I knew he would probably limit himself to his obligations. And so those obligations he had, he had a meet and greet and he had a presentation and I missed both of those because they took place during podcast row. But anyway, when talking to the people that in attendance, the, the guests there, they, they had shared the same concern, but I quickly reminded them, look, I've been a plenty of, of fantastic things in my life and plenty of terrible things in my life. And my thought is always, I would rather there be way too much to do than not enough to do. You get so much bang for your buck at CrimeCon. And, um, the, the city this year was fantastic. New Orleans is an experience in itself. I, I just, my heart swells for, for Nashville. So I loved Nashville last year and I really loved the venue last year. Um, and I'm looking forward to Orlando fingers crossed that they'll invite me back. Um, I really ripped up the hotel room this year, so I'm not sure that that's going to happen. I, I went full Motley crew on the hotel room. <laughs> Yeah, it was, uh, you know, being the first time that I'd been to uh, CrimeCon and being invited to Podcast Row was, uh, yeah, it was really cool. Uh, definitely was awesome being stationed next to uh, you guys as well as Generation Y and uh, Renner being right there. And I thought that was just uh, very ideal for for listeners and for the people that know that our shows kind of cross over every once in a while where you're on my show, I'm on your, your show or Renner, you know, yada, yada, yada is all over, you know, who killed Amy Mihaljevic as well as you are too. So it, I thought it was really, I thought it was great for the uh, listener because they could go from, you just did a two-parter on the case on the Amy Mihaljevic case. And then they can go, Oh, what's this case who killed Amy Mihaljevic. And it was just like, it was really helpful as far as getting new people and, you know, new eyes on the case and hopefully, you know, just more attention. And, you know, I was passing out those uh, postcards that basically are just the current flyers that the FBI has up on their website. That was, and, that was very smart of you. That I thought one, they look great and it's a good little, it's a way to remind everybody about the case, bring awareness and awareness to your podcast, which is very detailed and very well done. And I'm with you, Bill. I, 
what I found most interesting about Podcast Row, about the setup of it, was it was clear to me the people in charge of setting up Podcast Row, they're not just some stiff suit somewhere. These are people that have listened to our shows and they, they are aware of what's going on and how we've crossed over and teamed up. And everybody that's, everybody that's really been on our show before and on your show, we're all right around each other. So like you said, it made it easy for the people that wanted to come say hello to you, to, to Generation Y, to all the fantastic podcasters there. It just it had a great flow to it. Yeah, it was really, it, I thought it was really a great experience. Uh, and you are dead, you know, you, no pun intended, but you're dead right about the uh, having stuff to do. I mean, it was literally, you looked at the schedule and it was, I want to go to the Iceman thing. I want to go to the Delphi murders thing. I want to go to the Dateline thing. I want to go to the, you know, and there were all these different things that you could go to, but yeah, podcast row. I mean, we have obligations, you know, that's what we're there for. You know, it's our duty to, you know, be there for the listeners and I get that. But yeah, I thought the setup was awesome. Um, I know that, uh, you know, the experience was just second to none. And, you know, we did get to go uh, to Bourbon Street one night, but, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and then we had the, you guys had that meet and greet that Friday and that was awesome. And uh, the whole experience I thought was really cool. Hopefully, uh, you know, get invited again next year. But uh, yeah, that was uh, definitely a, a good experience and Orlando seems like a, you know, seems like a really good place to have it as well. So um hoping for uh hoping for the best for the next uh for the next crime con. But yeah, it definitely seemed like this year they were really pushing advocacy too. You know, there was a lot of all a lot of of the events were open cases unsolved cases and this was my first year so i'm not 100 percent sure if it's been like that every year but you know i know that it felt like a lot of the podcasts and even just a lot of the presentations were about getting attention to certain cases and that seems like it takes an event that could be misconstrued and makes it more of like we're providing a service and bringing attention to these cases that need to be solved and getting these people, you know, off the streets. So that was my, that was my impression of at least what the presentations were like. And I do want to give a bit of a shout out here. If I could, you and I attended the Delphi murders presentation together and that whole case, we don't need to get into it because there's, would be here for a couple of days, but I do want to really give big kudos to Kelsey Germain, who, or Kelsey German, I'm sorry, I always say Germain, we have a Germain dealership around here, so, uh, but a big kudos to Kelsey German, the older sister, older sister of Liberty German, for, she was in attendance at CrimeCon, and she participated in that um, talk about her sister's murder. So brave, such a brave young woman, and such a nice, sweet person. I've been fortunate enough to meet some of the other family members of the two young victims, and they, I mean, you're, you just, it just breaks your damn heart because these were such 
beautiful young girls from very good families, from from very strong family-oriented upbringing. And I, the the one thing here is that we still have her the family families out fighting for these two, and they're not going to stop. They're not going to stop in that. Uh, that gives me encouragement to keep doing what I'm doing and you encouragement to keep doing what you're doing and everybody listening out there to stay active and stay involved in the cases that, um, that anybody's passionate about. Well, and I think it gave, it helped give a little bit of perspective too on what it is that we do. And, you know, yeah, we're podcasters and we provide stuff for people to listen to. And some people can say it's entertainment. I mean, it isn't, you know, it's entertainment, but we're, at the end of the day, there is still an uh, advocacy aspect to it where, mm-hmm. I, you know, we're looking to solve, not solve, you know, we're not looking to solve, but bring attention to the cases that are, you know, loom over certain communities like the Mahalovic case and, you know, like the case, I mean, there's just so many cases that aren't solved that you guys cover and that you know, the cases that are solved are interesting, but the unsolved cases, you know, it does kind of, it helps that we have this podcast medium to bring attention to cases. And it's, once it's out there, you know, people can get on board and find out about it. And what happened in Australia, even you could learn about just by opening up your podcast app. I mean, that's when I graduated college and you know in journalism or whatever it was a different you know the internet was a different animal at the time it was mm-hmm. just not what it is today and podcasting hadn't taken off and it i don't even think it well i mean actually when it graduated it was probably there but um in the last 10 years though it, in the last five years for sure you know the podcast mediums made it more available for people to bring attention to cases. And I think that's just awesome. And I think the events like CrimeCon and, you know, the true crime festivals and stuff like that, they just kind of keep, you know, the proper attention on cases that need it. So that's just- Well, and true crime podcast is infotainment. You know, it's, it's choose, choose what you want. It could be, it could, for some people it's news, it's history it's entertainment and then other people find a case and they choose to get involved, whether that be in an armchair detective web sleuthing role or in, in a, in a more upfront boots on the ground role. And for the Delphi murders, one way that people can get involved is you can make a, a donation, a dollar, $5, 10, 20, 50, whatever you want. They are building a big park in Delphi. And this is going to be complete with softball fields, baseball fields. And this is going to be dedicated to these young girls that had their whole life ahead of them. And one thing is this case will be solved eventually. And and for us who want to see it to be solved, that chapter in our lives will be done and will be closed. But this park is going to be around for a long, long time. And it's not like they're just sitting there collecting money right now for this park. The park is in the process of being constructed. They are, they are manipulating the land and setting things up so that they can start to put these things in. And I encourage anyone that wants to 
if, if you go, you know what, I really feel like I should be involved in this Delphi murders case and I don't know how to, that's an easy way. That's an easy way. Open up your pocketbook. And I know it's everybody choose your own way, how to spend your hard earned money, but this is something you can feel good about at the end of the day, make a contribution. Let's build a park for these girls and let's keep it around for a very long time. In a way, too, it starts to help the community to heal because that community is still very much hurting. Yeah, especially when you have a small community of, I think they said there's 3,000 people in the city of Delphi. And, you know, during the press conference, obviously, they said, you know, we think you're hiding in plain sight. This park is also a constant reminder to that person or to the killers that they aren't going to give up. And I was really impressed with, you know, the one, um, for the grandfather, I forget of which girl, but um, he, you know, his passion behind the project, just, it was definitely palpable. And uh, mm-hmm. I thought it was really, uh, it was impressive that they are able to put themselves out there without having really given anybody really all that much information about how they died or anything like that. We just have a sketch, some audio. And I mean, luckily we have that stuff because she was able to record it, but I don't know. I mean that, that Delphi, the case itself is definitely one that's, you know, I think it will, it will be solved sooner rather than later. I don't think it's going to be something that lingers on, but, uh, But yeah, I thought that presentation was well done and it was good to see that the state troopers were involved and, you know, Mm -hmm. it wasn't just a, you know, it wasn't just I I don't know, show and tell. Let's just put it. Correct. Yeah. It was, it was, uh, it was helpful. So anything that keeps that case out there and I think anybody that follows uh, crime or true crime or, you know, things like this would definitely recognize that they aren't going to give up. And uh, I think that's the same way with the Mahalovic case. And actually, we've talked about that in regards to the Mahalovic case. I was on the FBI's website yesterday, the Cleveland website. Second mm-hmm. thing down is a picture of Amy. So it's like on their main homepage that they're, you know, seeking information on that case. And it's just like 30 years later, this is the front page of their website. That's kind of crazy, but at least it's good to know that they're keeping it out there. Well, and I would recommend to them, you know, with the 30 year anniversary coming up of the abduction in October, I would recommend a presser, you know, do a press Mm -hmm. conference, even if it's a small one, because it's one that will go out on TV and internet. I would do one again on the anniversary of when she was found. I really, really, unless some new information comes about other than people like you and I and documentarians, there's without these anniversaries, there's, you know, these are kind of placeholders for a reason to remind the public that it's unsolved and that we're still looking for this individual who we need your help because the, the only thing that we know for certain about this guy is he's extremely dangerous and he's a murderer. I mean, so keep that in mind. 
even all these years later. Right. <clears throat> and even if it's a one-off, this is a guy that's still could be living in the community, could be coaching kids soccer, could be involved in community, all sorts of stuff. But that's uh, not the reason why we're actually here today. Today we're actually here to discuss a case that you brought to my attention that I thought was so interesting because of the similarities between I mean, you have different <clears throat> similarities, but I just, it, it's so interesting the fact that the phone call, this girl was lured with a phone call. And the case that we're talking about is Allison Perot from Toronto. And give a little background on that case if, you, uh, if you've got a second. Yeah. And I do want to mention real quick uh, th between you and me, and I, I didn't think about this till now, because really what what linked Allison Perot's case to Amy's case for me is the phone call, the, the aspect of the phone call. That's the ruse. That's the lure. And I actually just thought of another case here in Columbus where this would have been in the seventies that was instigated by a phone call. So I know that kind of throws a wrench in our whole little general thought about it, but, um, it, True, but as as far as like time frames go, this case, the reason why I find this case to be interesting in regards to Amy's case is it would have happened only three years prior to Amy's. So that would have been more in the news and would have been something that somebody could have well, know, learned in the, about. In regards to the Columbus case that I just referenced, it's it's one of those cases that's uh, as far as law enforcement's concerned, they've publicly said, this is the individual that did it. He's dead. Um, that's about as far as they could take it. In that case, the individual did know the victim though, where what I think is fascinating about Allison Perot and Amy Mahalovic, it's always been my strong belief that the offender did not really know the victim. And we know that to be true in Allison Perot's case. So that's why it's fun to do these type of exercises to see. It's, it's really about learning more about this type of offender and why he offends this way and his, his modus operandi and how he chooses his victimology. A lot of that, if, if it is the same scenario where this individual does not really know Amy, just know some little, little bits of information about her, because that's all this guy had with Allison Perot. Those yeah, are things that, those are things that we can learn from. And those are the things that we need to study and take a look at. So I'll give you a rundown of the very basics of the details of Allison's case. And then we'll go through some of the, the other things that I think are, are very interesting about it. So at about 11 o'clock on the morning of July 25th, 1986, Allison Perot received a phone call at her Summer Hill Avenue home in Midtown Toronto. This is a male caller claiming to be a photographer. Now this male caller asked 
Allison to meet him at the University of Toronto's Varsity Stadium, where he said he would be taking publicity photos of her and her teammates. Now, Allison, a member of the Tom Longboat Club, was to participate in an international track and field meet in Plainfield, New Jersey, on August 1st, exactly one week later. She called her mother, Leslie, at work and got permission to attend this session. Now, the thing about, she was only 11, but she was a runner, and so she had participated in a race that supposedly garnered her some attention and basically she was in the paper this guy must have read about her looked her up in the phone book or maybe knew i mean he couldn't have looked her up but tried to go through the phone book and stumbled across the name i you know it, that part's interesting I, I think i'd be interested to hear how he you know how he actually ended up choosing her other than seen in her in the paper like how he actually tracked her down because it was 1986 um, my general understanding of that bill is that that he was aware of her name and had seen her and i i believe it was she he saw a photo of her with her name posted so this case even though they found her body just days later it remained unsolved for a very long time now the way I discovered this case was simply from reading one of John Douglas's books. The ironic thing here is this was not a case being a Toronto case. This was not a case that Douglas investigated himself. He was up in Toronto doing some other work. And while there, a friend of his that was, you know, in law enforcement up in Toronto said, Hey, could you come by and, and talk through this case with us? I'll provide you the case file and what we do know. And can you provide us a offender profile of the likely offender so that we can narrow down our suspect pool? The thing that I find fascinating about that, this is also very similar to Amy Mahalovic's case, where the only profile I've, offender profile I've ever seen in Amy's case is provided to us by Robert K. Ressler in his book, where under similar circumstances, he is in Ohio doing other work. He's contacted by individuals that he used to work with, special agents, and they say, hey, we got this horrible uh, crime that took place. At the time, Amy was simply abducted and missing. Her body had not been found. So Dick Wren and John Dunn, special agents, they ask if Ressler could come to the Cleveland area and provide his expertise. And again, we will provide you with what we do know. Here's our case file. Can you provide us with an offender profile? And that's the only one that I've ever really seen in, in Amy's case. And it's, it's very, we get really kind of the nuts and, you know, the, the bare bones of the profile is what is, you know, published in, in Wrestler's book. And the, the bones of it are they're looking for a white man, late 20s or early 30s, introverted, loner, relatively unsuccessful, unmarried, not overly educated, but not stupid, no military service, 
propensity for spending a lot of time with kids. That's kind of the bare bones of, of what that profile is. And that profile is, if anybody wants to read further, is in Whoever Fights Monsters by Robert K. Ressler. The thing here, though, we have a little more extensive of a profile. We, because in Douglas's book, he, he gives us kind of every aspect of it. And if, if we have time, Bill, I'd like to go through that now. Absolutely. Okay. So what Douglas suspects is that it's a stranger abduction. And obviously at the time that he's putting together this profile, it's an unknown, unknown subject. The offender profile is as such white male in his thirties, respectable looking, not threatening in appearance could have a job that involves being around children. This could even be something indirect may have had run-ins with the law, but more likely some vague complaints against him involving children and no previous murder or violent crimes arrest. Some connection to photography, maybe just an avid amateur, a local rather than an outsider and maybe a recreational hunter or fisherman. So let's, try to figure out why Douglas comes up with, with this, these thoughts here, right? Okay. Some of this is pretty easy. A lot of it has to do with the landscape. Okay. Let's call it a crime scene, the abduction site. Why would you say white male in his thirties, respectable looking, not threatening in appearance? Because there, there were no eyewitnesses that come forward and say, Oh, I saw this weird guy. I saw this guy that seemed out of place. There was none of that. So what that meant is this guy fits the background. He he's not obvious to any eyewitnesses and he doesn't stand out. He fits the the area. He he would look like a resident. And on top of that, we know that Allison went with him or got close enough to him that he snatched and grabbed her. Therefore, he cannot be threatening in appearance because she would have never got that close to him or would have never went with him in the first place. He looked the role and didn't put off any alarm bells when she saw him. The other thing here may have a job that involves being around children. This could be something indirect. And also the thing about, uh, some connection to photography. Well, he, that's part of his ruse. He used photography as part of his ruse. He's going to want to use something that he's fairly comfortable with. Or if in fact he did see a picture of her in the newspaper, he knows that his victim is comfortable being photographed, maybe even wants to be photographed. So you could work that either angle, I think. And, but this is also somebody that knows how to talk to children. And we see this too when, often when we go through Amy's case. This is something I've always believed, that the individual that spoke to Amy was smart enough in, in the sense that he could convince her to go somewhere that he wanted. He's setting up the appointment. Meet me here at this time on this day. It's not, I'm not going to say it's impossible, but it helps you if you're comfortable speaking with children and if you know how their minds work. We're talking about 10 and 11-year-old individuals here, and we're talking about an adult male offender. So it helps 
this guy for his game to know how to talk to children, know how to convince his victim how to meet him where he wants to. Maybe a recreational hunter or fisherman. This is basically going to come from where they found the body. The, the, her body was found outdoors uh, in a densely wooded area. I believe it was near a river or stream. So what he's pointing out here is this is somebody that's comfortable with the outdoors. The, the offender is not going to put himself at more risk than he has to. So just by nature, he's going to pick areas and things that he is more comfortable with. Now, he goes on to say, Douglas goes on to say, the offender knew Allison's name but wouldn't know her address, so he would have to call all of the Perot's in the phone book to track her down. What I like about Douglas's offender profile is he will often, and I know wrestler did this as well, but wrestler's a little more reserved with what he puts out there to the public where Douglas, he always includes strategies for tracking this individual. How would I catch this individual, the, the offender? So one thing he's telling us is what the, the crime scene and what the case file tells him is that the offender knew Allison's name but would not have known her address, so he likely had to call all of the Perot's in the phone book until he got to her. Now, we've talked about the problems with tracking that down, especially if Douglas was right saying that it was a local, not somebody from out of town. Yeah, I mean... <clears throat> Again, these local phone calls in 1980s, I mean, they just didn't have the technology. They didn't, it wasn't a thought to track that kind of stuff. So, I mean, to think that, yeah, it'd be awesome to go back and look at the phone records and say, okay, well, this number's clearly out of the ordinary. They, all, they didn't have it. They didn't, they didn't have a list of numbers. You know, it's right. like the, the Mahalovic case. You know, they maybe have been a, a year away from that technology, but in reality the fact that they can't just pull up a list like you can on your Verizon bill today and see all the phone numbers that you've called and then figure out oh well this, this number has been called more than another it, you know that aspect of things it just sucks that the 80s just didn't I mean the technology just wasn't there I mean it's just it is what it is but, well and then think about this little next little nugget here because this definitely definitely feeds into amy's case as well remember in now any profiler will tell you that age is the hardest thing to apply to the profile and that is based off of the behaviors and the movements and the actions of the offender are based off of their brain off of their knowledge off of their life experiences and we don't all have those same experiences and same knowledge and same, uh, uh, same life or learning than one another. And, and one thing that they point out too often is that, especially if somebody has offended before and spends a good deal of time in prison, prison does a certain thing to your brain where it just kind of puts it on ice for a while. 
where the behaviors of a 45-year-old offender who spent the last 25 years in prison might behave, have movements, and similar uh, modus operandi to somebody that is in their early 20s because they spent so much time in prison. But that being said, I will now say this. Remember, he says early in the profile that the, it is a white male in his 30s. Okay, so why is he going to choose 30s over 20s? Well, he goes on to clarify. To make the offender believable and to get the victim to agree to meet him at a much less risky location other than her home or school, he would have to have had a convincing and disarming conversational style. Now, this much planning and sophistication pointed to a more mature, intelligent, organized offender. Simply put, he's picking somebody in his 30s rather than 20s because this guy planned and took his time. He wasn't impulsive. He didn't just run up and grab the first girl that he saw, and he didn't make mistakes when talking to her on the phone. Now, people say, how could you know that he didn't know, make any mistakes, Nick, when he talked to her on the phone? I know he didn't make any mistakes because exactly what he wanted to happen happened. That's, that's plain and simple, it. His goal, his result that he was seeking when he phoned Allison Perot's home, asking for Allison that day, he got the result that he wanted. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Yeah, I mean, the the success rate on being able to call somebody once, twice, and then literally be able to lure her, uh, rape her, and then murder her, and then he got away with it for almost two decades. Not quite two decades, but he got away with it for a decade. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's one of those things it's just crazy that you know people uh i don't know you can take a i don't know it's just and listen to this this is this has always been kind of your and i uh, this falls into some theories that you and i have put forth with amy's case Mm -hmm. so the offender likely used this technique before to get other kids with much less consequence. So there is some speculation whether there were other phone calls involved before Amy was abducted, maybe even afterward. But what we're seeing here and what Douglas is suggesting is that this individual was, was practicing this technique, practicing this technique likely for situations where there's going to be less consequence, meaning he wants, he's carrying it a step further every time that he practices this technique, much like Edmund Kemper picking up a hitchhiker and seeing how far they will ride with him. And then the next time he picks them up and takes them to a location 
other than where they request to go just to see how that's going to play itself out. Then the third time he picks up a hitchhiker, takes him somewhere where they don't want to go. And now he's got a gun in the car. And then the fourth time it ends in murder and all kinds of other nasty business. So it's, it's practicing the technique just as any baseball team or football team would, would do out there. You're, you're, you're seeking a certain result and you're going to apply different methods trial through trial and error. You're going to figure out what works. So the offender wants to meet Allison at a location that she feels comfortable. So he, he wants to convince her to go willingly to a location but he also needs to feel comfortable at that location. There's, there's a give and take there, right? There's a give and take yeah, there. You, you, absolutely. Yeah, you, and the, you know, he, he's saying, come to this place. He's, it's similar to the Amy thing. It's a comfortable spot. You've been here before, um, you know, looking into the case of, you know, the Allison case, it's, you know, it states that she, it was about a 20 minute subway ride from her home, but it was the same stadium where she trained and it was also in the middle of town. So, and in the middle of the day, just like Amy, very comfortable, right. very reassuring. And that's definitely, you know, you mentioned, and I don't, I, earlier when we were talking about the, you know, the, how this all occurred, uh, in one of the articles from around that time, they do talk about how a man headphoned 11 days prior to the kidnapping with the mm -hmm. same story, but it's spoken to a babysitter, but Allison was at camp. So she maybe thought, and apparently she was told about this. So she thought it was, you know, on the up and up, but as she learned, it was not. Well, and again, similar circumstances where not only did the offender use the phone to connect with his victim, but the victim, uh, through one way or another, it was known after the fact, after the abduction, that we can probably link this abduction to that phone call. Yeah, it's, you know, the one thing that they talk about in one of those articles that I was reading from, gosh, it had been 1986 and I, and I, it was from the Chicago Tribune. I'll just, and it was, I think it was titled, if somebody wants to learn a lot about this case, you know, from what that time was, it was August 3rd, 1986. It was called The Girl Followed Rules, but Killer One Game. And in it, they basically talk about how, um, the ruse of taking sport. This is just straight from the article. The ruse of taking sports photos immediately elicited calls to police from mystery fans. And they pointed out that in lightning, a novel published in 1984, a killer stalks a young female track star and lures them out by saying he is a reporter for a sports magazine and wants to interview them. I just think that's, kind of crazy but they do talk about in this 1986 article they have asked john douglas a supervisory agent with the fbi and an expert in criminology or an expert in criminal personality profiles to examine the case so it's just crazy to think that i mean august 3rd 1986 and you know douglas's name is all over it already so just insane <laughs> 
Well, one thing that's interesting here, I, di- I didn't was unaware about that book. You said Lightning is the title. Yeah, so so it's it's a book by Ed McBain, which sounds like a character. I think McBain is from The Simpsons. Hmm. <laughs> is uh, that's what I think of. But uh, I I remember reading that article or that <clears throat> little snippet. And apparently that uh, I looked up a book. I tried to find it on Amazon. It seems to be out of print. Um, I think you could probably buy it somewhere, maybe from his website. But yeah, the uh, the fact that it actually made people call in and you know, hey, this sounds really similar to that. That's, uh, it's kind of interesting. Um. Hang on one second. I want to make no a problem. note here. It says, although police acknowledge they are reading the book, they say that they cannot connect or they can't comment on a possible connection. Well, okay. So think about this for a second. Um, there could be no connection at all, but let's, let's do another exercise and entertain this idea. Later, we would, we would learn that the man convicted 10 years later in the Allison Perot case, we know that he had offended before. He was not a, a murderer prior to this, as far as we know. But from my understanding, he spent some time being locked up. You, you wonder, is this a book that he read as a civilian at one point? Or is this a book that he read as an inmate? And he adapted this method this technique and applied it to give it a shot take it for a test drive and see how it plays out yeah and it makes me it does make me wonder as far as you know what did he see that that could work i mean was that something that he thought okay well this is a this is a story that would put her at ease because I mean, you look at the Mahalovic case, he used her mom as the, you know, basically the reassurance of this is going to be fine. I work with your mom. Um, you know, again, is it possible that Amy's killer read about Allison's killer or Allison's murder? And, you know, you can all basically connect it back to that book, but. I don't know. It'd be interesting it's not, it's, the... it, I don't think that it's out of the realm of possibility. You know, I've, I've, I've had, I've gone through interviews with, with serial killers and, and a lot of them, you know, I shouldn't say a lot of them, but several of them have said, you know, you, you collected baseball cards when you were a kid and you, you reviewed the stats and you knew the stats of your favorite players. My, I was, I was reading about serial killers and, and learning from what worked for them and what didn't work for them. And on that same thought, if somebody did study or were, was aware of Allison Perot's case in 1989 or before then and chose to, use a similar technique and ruse why not pick this one the offender at the time of allison's case had not been detected and caught and convicted 
that's the result you want, right? That's a fabulous point because at that time, you're right, he wasn't convicted and he was still on the on the loose and, you know, probably committing crimes as well. I mean, it's just, I guess to somebody that could just be like the perfect setup. And I don't know if you have to have a real deep knowledge of phone tracing or phone technology in 1989 to know that they don't trace your phone calls, but. Or use a, use a pay phone. I mean, there were a bazillion of them. Right. I'm, exactly. And yeah, what, one thing I do want to. who don't know what a pay phone is. You actually put money into this thing that was on a corner and there were telephones that you actually put money in and you would make phone calls, but they don't exist anymore now that we have cell phones. <laughs> yeah. And one thing I want to point out here too, with Amy's case, there are a couple things that we do, we do know that happened and I find it to be very interesting and I feel like we should get contact Ma Bell and find out what we can find out. This is, um, if anybody wants to do this homework out there or knows how to do this type of homework, please do it and let Bill and I know. But we know that Amy was about what time Amy was picked up. We also have a very general idea of when she called her mother at work. So if in fact this offender chose, Amy's killer chose to use a payphone to lessen his risk of getting caught when calling Amy, he very likely would have chose a payphone again to have Amy call her mother at work. There, there was not a lot of time that, that went that passed between her abduction when, when she left with the individual in, in the vehicle and when that phone call came in. And I think, and I'm basing this a lot off of a couple of timelines that I've seen. Most of them have Amy being greeted by a man around 2.45 p.m. Correct me if I'm wrong, Bill. Um, so let's say 2.45 to 2.50 p.m.-ish. Does that sound right? Uh, yeah. Um, oh, let me give you an exact. Uh, it was actually, let's see. If you would have asked me two weeks ago, I would have known. Yeah, I know. Uh, I mean, it, it was right around that time. It was between 2.45 and 3.15, basically. But it was 3.15 that Jason basically raises the alarm that, um, you know, he called. That's when he called his mom to say that she hadn't been, hadn't returned home. So, yeah, the assumption is that she was probably taken between 2.45 and 3 o'clock. So... Yeah, just going off of memory, I couldn't remember if 2.45 was the estimated arrival time at the plaza because we do know a few minutes expired before the offender approached Amy. But even if I'm off a little bit on that time, the fascinating thing to me is shortly after Jason tells Margaret that Amy's not home, Margaret's words are that shortly after, we don't know what shortly exactly means, but 3.30 is what, is what I've got. Is the general thought? Okay, so. She got the phone call, yeah. So you, you figure that's traffic, all that. It's, it'd be interesting to draw a radius, approximate drive time radius around Bay Village Shopping Plaza because we know that that call had to occur with inside that circle. That's just would be something that would be interesting to 
to view and to look at. Yeah, I mean, I definitely could look at, you know, I, I know pretty much all the gas stations and, you know, all those convenience stores, they pretty much all had pay phones. So, you know, the idea that he would have used one that would have been, let's just say, I don't know, a half mile away, that's completely plausible. Yeah. Yeah. But what it would, would tell not, us. She's not, but she's not worried yet. You know what I mean? Like she's still under the idea that it's all good. Well, again, we have to believe that that call too was local. So we can go ahead and, and eliminate anything outside of the area code from where Margaret worked. But with inside that big area, which is the area code, we could probably eliminate portions of that area code just based off of general drive time and say, even at the very latest, we, we got, and this seems very, very um, uh, longer than it needs to be, but even at the latest, what, 40 minutes drive time? What, so down to down to Ashland. No, I, I just mean between the time that we know that the, that it's believed that the offender approached her oh, to, gotcha. to likely when the phone call, phone call came in. Yeah. Let's say, I mean, let's just say that she got picked up at three o'clock. I mean, 30 minutes, gosh, that, but it only takes about 15, 20 minutes to get out of, out of bay. You know, if you're heading, yeah, I mean, if you're heading south, I mean, it takes five minutes to get out, out of Bay, or not even. I mean, you've you've been to the Moosehead Saloon, which is literally right across the street, or right across the railroad tracks from Bay, which is only a half mile from where Amy was taken. So it would have been two, three minutes before she would have been out of the city. It could eliminate some of the corners, though, I'm saying, of the of that area code. Some of the ones True. that are further away. Anyway, sorry, you know me. I get sidetracked with, with these things. Um, oh, it always. It's a <laughs> rabbit hole. <laughs> so uh, continuing on, there's some other interesting things in Douglas's profile. Vehicle type. A commercial-style van with not many windows. The sexual assault would take place inside his vehicle. He didn't, he did not intend to kill Allison. Killing was not a part of his plan or his thinking. The offender developed a fantasy of a real relationship between him and the attractive, what he, what he perceived to be attractive, prepubescent girl. This fantasy would have been solidified in his mind by her willingness to get in the vehicle, meaning he's got this fantasy that somehow they're going to meet and they're going to fall in love or that she's going to find him attractive. And the only confirmation he needs of this is her willingness to get in the vehicle that that's him going, okay, she likes me. We can carry this a step further in the direction that he wants it to go. Now, uh, when he, when they get to the location where he feels comfortable, so he's trying to get the victim into his vehicle and then take her somewhere where he feels comfortable. This is going to be a more isolated area. This is going to be away from any eyes or ears that might hear or see what's going on. He makes a sexual advance and expects her to react the way that a consenting adult woman would. But instead, she's 11. He's a 30-year-old monster. 
she reacts the way that any terrified little girl would and rejects him. This would be crying, yelling, screaming. She wants to go home. She doesn't want to be with this guy. And now he has lost total control of the situation. He's not getting what he wants from the situation, but he can't let her go. This is why he says, Douglas says he didn't plan to kill the victim. He thought that if, if I get there and, and at the meeting place and she decides not to go with me, no harm, no foul, I'll just try again later. If she does go with me, I'm going to take it a step further. Her willingness to get into the vehicle confirms in my sick brain that she wants to be with me. And then when she, when she behaves the way that we would expect an 11-year-old girl to behave, he's then reminded, shit, this is an 11-year-old girl. I called her at her house. I asked her to get in my vehicle. I took her to this isolated area. I can't just let her go now because I've already committed all kinds of crimes. And so he's going to react the only way that he knows how, and this is going to turn into him trying to control the situation, her fighting back. This all yeah. because she, she can identify him. You know, it's, she, she's going to be able to provide some information to the authorities about his vehicle, about him, about things that he told her, what he looks like. They will probably be able to track this guy down. Yeah, I mean, you look at what the... I mean, that profile is similar to... I mean, they all sound so similar to what the Mahalovic case is, you know, 30s, average, you know. You want, you want to hear some more similarities? Sure. Okay. Placement of the body. He would be a local in this place he would not only be familiar with, but comfortable with. This place was chosen because he would know what to expect while he's there with the victim and placing the body and know what he wouldn't be and know that he would not be interrupted. The body is lying on the ground, placed, not tossed in the river, not buried and not thrown away like garbage. On some level, he wants her body to be found. He wants her to be taken care of in death and have a proper burial. This goes back to the thought that he became, he was fantasizing about the victim and developed some type of emotional connection to her, even though right. it's only in his own mind. After the murder, he does not feel good about himself for what happened. He feels inadequate. He will not plan to kill again, but will always be capable of murdering again. Yeah, that, so I just want to give you, so I've got a profile. So back in, in 1999, Cleveland Magazine did a 10-year like retrospective on the Amy Mahalovic case. And it's one of the better articles ever done on the case. Uh, it's about, I mean, it's really, really, really well done. Is, like it, a, is it just titled Amy Mahalovic or what is it it's titled? It's called Who Killed Amy? Okay. And I've, and I've read that, but it's been Thomas. years ago. And it, you're I'll right, it, it is fantastic. It is fantastic. It's the most detailed uh, version of what going, what's going on during that day. You know, at that time, you know, I mean, we, Renner's obviously gone into 
greater detail, but in this report, you know, in this story, they talked to, uh, I believe it's Stephen Etter and uh, Wayne Lord, who are both uh, profilers, uh, you know, to give the simplest name. But th this is what they talk about with Ashland. They go, this is what uh, Wayne Lord said. He said, Lord explains that Ashland County location, the Ashland County location is just as important. You know, this was not random. When you are disposing of something that could ruin your entire life, you're going to be careful. And so this unknown male knew County Road 1181. He knew that he could quickly pay, place Amy's body just over a shallow ridge a few yards from the pavement and expect it would go undiscovered for a few weeks or a few months. And like, that's just so similar and but not not buried not not tossed in the river not right, thrown away placed. like like placed not like placed. thrown like, away like trash up for the most and most likely most you know with the fact that they found those blank the blanket and the curtain i mean my assumption is and i i could be but my theory goes is that she was wrapped in those things and just with the fact that that area is such a you know it's basically like a wind <laughs> you don't want to be running down that street let's just put it that way it's open field and very windy especially in the winter time so i think she was originally covered and those blew away that's my yeah. that's my thought and i think that's why she wasn't discovered so quickly and you know you you do go back i mean you look at allison's case and you say okay and the douglas profile about not wanting you know kind of wanting her to be found but not you know you don't want to get caught for it <laughs> like they're not that they don't feel that bad about it they just they feel a closeness with their victim that they want there to be maybe it's they wanted to be in the news maybe they want the recognition that the body's been found you know because a lot of people could like they say about amy's case and i think you brought it up in your podcast you they didn't just if he wanted to he could have walked to quarter mile more mile or a quarter mile further into that field dug a hole and we maybe never have found her we would have never found her if that would have happened no i mean it just there were plenty of places in that location where her body was found which was again in the middle of the, like for people who are familiar with the state of ohio basically in between columbus and cleveland but in one of the most rural and desolate areas. And so we're talking farmland, fields, just very, 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 very few people. And, you know, like they say, you know, it's just not random. Um, and I think with, you know, Allison's case, where was her body? Her body was, was it was found near the stadium though, wasn't it? This was in a uh, found dead two evenings later in a densely wooded area of Kings Mill Park on the Humber River, just below the okay. Old Mill subway station. So, so um, probably someplace I, that he had been before. I don't know the distance between the abduction site and the dump site, but pointing out, Douglas pointing out that the body was near enough the river that the river could have been a very 
likely option for the offender. But he he chose to, for whatever reason, whether it was something he, he thought about or didn't even think about, he chose not to use the river. And a lot of times, too, what what these profilers will tell us is the amount of effort that one goes to to hide a body often reflects their their connection or their strong connection or their no connection to the victim where they will say that if if somebody just places a body or throws a body out of a car on the side of the road they usually are doing that because they have very little to no connection with the victim where an offender as you mentioned if they if it was a neighbor if the victim was a neighbor of the offender or a niece or a brother or whatever the wife the closer the connection between a victim and offender the greater lengths that the offender will go to hide the body because especially back in the day when you had states that weren't convicting people of murder if they couldn't find the body you could you could say all night and day that that some guy killed his wife because he's the only likely suspect but back then if you had no body you couldn't even bring it to court so right. it, it's it's just that very general that very general thought and feel that that given the opportunity that's the thing we have to keep in mind though too given the opportunity most offenders will choose to further conceal the body if they know or if they're close to the victim again both of these situations allison's case and amy's case just kind of placed out there easy to find again going back to the thought that the offender in amy's case may not have had any connection to her at all other than other than he knew her name and what she looked like yeah i mean i think <clears throat> i think there's definitely you know they like to emphasize the fact that he had to have had some knowledge of <clears throat> of the family and you know there had to be some personal knowledge um uh you know how much that is i don't know i mean i think you could pick up a lot of information you know if if it was 2019 like it is now you could go on their instagram and find out exactly who they are what they're doing uh but 1989 you know you, you got to figure that the guy who saw amy had to have been familiar with the area i mean had to frequent the area you know in that article they do talk about um they go they quote uh they, we have reason to believe that he knew this area. Maybe he was a resident or a contract worker or delivery person with familiar with Bay Square. So, you know, it, it does. But how would he know Amy? <laughs> you know, if he was just a delivery person, that's my, that's my thought. I get the, I get the Perot case because of the fact that she was in the paper. And I know that, yeah, you know, pictures are pictures and whatever, but, you know, if we want to go way deep into your theory, I mean, pictures come back on your theories and about the Mahalovic case. So 
you know, we can open that rabbit hole someday again, but that one's a whole, you know, that's a great theory. The yeah, one thing I, about the, what's that? Uh, well, I'm just going through Douglas's suggestions and strategies for finding Allison's killer. Authorities should publicly humanize and personalize the victim as much as possible. The offender has done his best to depersonalize her after the fact. Publicly discuss her life's moments and accomplishments using the newspapers and TV coverage. Hold a very public memorial at the body dump location. Hold a very public memorial at the abduction location. Here's one that I find incredibly interesting because listen to this. And you might not make the connection right away, but I love, and I know this is very Hollywood, cat and mouse, FBI investigators, detectives versus serial killer or one-time offender, what have you. Mm -hmm. Plant a seed of doubt in the offender's mind by having police announce that a mysterious vehicle matching his, in this case, we suspect a van, Allison's case, was seen mm -hmm. near the abduction or dump site and anyone with information regarding this vehicle should contact police. Hmm. <laughs> Amy's, Amy's case, didn't we have a, a we woman? A that, we had a yeah, woman had a that came forward, uh, what, months and months later saying, I saw a suspicious hatchback with a, a man standing near the open hatchback of this vehicle around 6 p.m. the night before her body was found with a vague description of the vehicle and do we got that person's that tipster's name because I'm starting to wonder could did they did they use this technique in Amy's case yeah you know I wonder about that that's an interesting ask that's that's interesting so they, this technique, I've seen this used often uh, in, in other cases, especially ones that Douglas has worked. And the reason why they do this is there's a belief, there's, there's a, a certain percentage belief that the offender himself will come forward to uh, and present himself either as somebody that witnessed that vehicle there. So now they're, they're not the, in the offender role in law enforcement's mind, they're in the witness role. Or they will come forward to explain away why uh, their vehicle may have been in the area at the time. It wouldn't be the first time that they've that they shook the trees and the offender fell out using this technique. Yeah, I. Uh, let's see. Damn uh... it. Yeah, I don't know the guy's name, but I know I do know that the sketch of the individual, because she, she did say that she saw the individual with over the hatchback. They put out a sketch, and it looks nothing like right. the original sketches. Now, granted, Spetzel has made sure to say don't put too much emphasis on those sketches. But if I was to be honest with you, it looks a lot like the Delphi, the recent Delphi sketch. Yeah. I'll send you a picture. Do you, do you have it? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, we actually spoke about it on when we covered Amy's okay. case a couple weeks ago. Okay. Yeah. The, the, it's such a different pic picture. It's just, you know, 
but yeah, that that is interesting to think that they would be putting misinformation out there. But that's their job. I mean, I think their job is to catch the killer whatever way they go about doing it. As far as legally speaking, I mean, there's nothing illegal about saying something like that. I mean, they're no. even allowed to lie to they're allowed to lie to you when you're in custody as far as like we have evidence for that proves you did this. Even though they don't, they can still do that and it's legal. You know, let's not get into the morality of that, but um, it's not unusual for for lies to be used to somehow get to the truth. Well, and when you're convicted by a jury of your peers or facing trial by a jury of your peers and you killed a child, no one gives a shit how... Uh, what what ruse you fell for when to walk yourself into the police station and say explain away your van that was seen near an abduction site nor should they yeah no no they yeah i mean i i just as far this is from this is from renner <laughs> Well, ignore that and listen to this. Um, this is what we were talking about earlier with Amy's case, especially with the 30-year uh, anniversary of the abduction upon us, as well as the body, her body being found date as well. Douglas suggests to target anniversaries of the abduction, the body being found, and victims' birthdays to remind him, the offender, and to remind the offender of his victim and that the public and the authorities are still looking for the killer. Yeah. That's just keeping the pressure on. That's just, that's just turning up the heat a little bit. And you want, that's an attempt to scare the offender into making a mistake or doing something stupid, even all these years later. Yeah. I think that the more, the more pressure, the more attention, the, you know, we're getting to it 30 years. I mean, this, obviously the time to solve the case is now, but let's just continue to keep the case in the spotlight and the pressure should still be on the killer because, I mean, he's the one that's walking around with the burden of murdering a young girl and mm -hmm the day that <clears throat> there is justice or there is some sort of resolution in the case. I mean, it's going to be, it'll be great. I mean, it doesn't bring Amy back and doesn't bring closure to her family, but it can close a chapter at least in some, in a lot of people's worlds and uh, the community, as far as knowing that this perpetrator is, you know, off the street, but, I don't know, man. Well, years. of course, we do know that Allison, Allison Perot's killer was eventually caught due to a DNA match, and the offender was Francis Carl Roy, and he was convicted about 10 years later. And I'm going to leave you on your own to discuss the details of, of that trial and the defense involved in that, if you if you wish. I, I've, yeah, yeah, he's uh he's a character, that's for sure. And uh 
I believe this is the guy who says that he just stumbled across the uh, the body. Right? You're not going to make me say it, are you? Okay. All right. All right. I'll do it. I'll I'll discuss it. I You'll do it on your own. You got to tell them how it ends. I, I will. I will. I will. It's I'm the that most he, absurd defense you've ever heard in your life. <laughs> when you hear the, the, the defense that he puts forward to suggest his innocence, that's when I say, we should probably lock this guy up anyway. Even if he didn't kill the girl, we need to lock this individual up. So I'll let you go through those horrible details claims what he claims to be yeah i can i can i can cover the nitty-gritty on that but um i'm guessing that you uh you got a roll i i am i'm i got the uh 10 to 15 minutes out warning okay all right well i do appreciate you uh joining me again nick and uh you know i your insight into the mahalava case and obviously bringing this case uh, you know, from Toronto to my attention was, was intriguing. And I hope the listeners will see the parallels. And, you know, again, this guy wasn't caught when Amy was uh, abducted, but mm-hmm. I mean, the, her kill, Allison's killer was eventually caught. So it's not to say that he has anything to do with Amy's killer. It's just the similarities and the idea that Amy's killer could have learned from this case because mm-hmm. it was the 80s and everybody was very familiar with stranger danger and missing children so if you had a propensity or an interest in children this would have been a good example for how to get one or lure one or could have learned from the same book as ironic as that might be both of them could have learned from from the same book so true true uh, all right, Bill. Well, I do appreciate you having me on, and it's always fun talking with you. Let's do it again soon. Awesome. I appreciate it, Nick, and uh, thanks again, and go get your uh, refrigerator fixed. <laughs> All right. Take care. All right, man. Thanks a lot. Take it easy. I'll talk to you soon. Yep. Thanks again to Nick for joining me on this week's episode of Who Killed Amy Mahalovic. Unfortunately, we have run out of time on this week's episode to discuss the details of the trial, but we will get there next week. So thank you again for listening, and if you enjoy this independently produced podcast, please help support the show by clicking on the donate button on the bottom left of whokilledamymahalovic.com or via the Venmo app with my username at billhuffman3. Any amount is appreciated, and it helps keep the podcast running. 
If you enjoyed this show, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, because this will help support the show and help keep Amy's story in the spotlight. You can contact the Bay Village Police Department at 440-871-1234 if you have any new information regarding this case. The FBI is offering a reward of up to $25,000 for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person responsible for the death of Amy Renee Mahalovic. So anyone with information concerning this case, please contact the FBI at one 800 Call FBI. Thank you again for listening, and be safe. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth. And together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there.